The Athletic. The Race F1 Tech Show. Brought to you by Aramco. How to turn your team into a front runner? F1's tie conundrum, and is the cost cap counterproductive? Gary answers all this and more. Welcome to another episode of the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. We're just about to head into a run of four races in five weekends before the summer break, so there's going to be plenty of action and technical intrigue to talk about. I'm Ed Straw, and I'm joined by the main man, Gary Anderson. So how's tricks? Tricks are good. Um, weather's been fantastic, so that uh, always makes life a bit easier. Um, just It seems like a long time since uh, since Montreal, really, since that the, that last race, to be honest. I don't, I don't know why. But um, I'm looking forward to racing getting going again. We want to know where everybody is. Everybody keeps coming with a few little upgrades here and there. But we never really get that stamp on it, you know. It's just one of those sort of difficult things to really get a black and white run at a good, a proper solid weekend at a proper solid racetrack. And, you know, obviously we see at the minute um, Red Bull running away with everything. But it, I don't think it's quite as black and white as that. But uh, we do need to get a a straightforward weekend for everybody and see what happens. And uh, hopefully out of these next few races, we will get one of those. Yeah, and it's nice that they're all on conventional circuits as well. We've had a few conventional circuits and a lot of oddball tracks in the first part of the season. So it's nice to get a, a, a broad set of data about those. So that's certainly going to be interesting. Obviously, Austria first, Silverstone, Hungary, and then Spa, which is before the uh, the summer break unusually this year. So yeah, there's going to be plenty to talk about there. Well, as always, we'll start the podcast with a free choice of topics for you. So what's on your mind in the world of F1 tech today, Gary? Well, there's a lot of a lot of talk about tires. Um, there always has been a lot of talk about tires, to be honest. And it's it's never been any different from the one from my time. I mean, I my first Grand Prix was uh, in 1973, Montju Park, and since then, I have seen many tire companies come and go, um, and I've seen many tire problems come and go. But it's never been easy, you know. The, the drivers, no matter what era it was, what the cars were, whether they're ground effect cars or you know the old cigarette shaped devices, um, it was or cigar shaped devices. It's it's never been something that is just simply the rubber bit that connects the car to the ground. You've always had to drive within it, you know. But way back then, I remember Austria as it used to be the old track, you know, the high speed corners blistering tires um you know that's back in 1973 i think it was and uh, so it's always been a problem the, the problems are always different you know we go from from one thing to another tires graining and bridgestone were, were top of the pile in the early 2000s you know we go to barcelona and the the, the tires are grain so hard or, or magna Cur even you know through the fast long fast corners the tires are grain so dramatically the front tires um, that your lap times would drop two or three seconds. And then and then they start to clean up after four or five laps, maybe half a dozen laps. And if you could live through that grading and do the best you could, um, you know, the tyre would clean up and start working again. So it's it's always had a different problem, no matter what what tyre company you've had. And it will be the same again because, you know, I think, you know, Michelin have said they're not really that interested in coming into Formula 1 because they don't want to be dictated to about what the tyre should do. They don't want to make good racing via the tyre. They want to advertise their product as being the best product for the for a road car, for a tyre on on the, on on, their, on, um, on any car. And Formula One or any motorsport is a is an advertising campaign. That's what it's all about. 
at the moment, I think, you know, Pirelli pay the teams to actually use their product, which is a, a very strange thing to do, but Pirelli are paying for that advertising. So it's, it's, a, it's a vicious circle, and I think it's wrong for people to complain so much about the Pirelli tyre. You know, again, you have to drive within anything you've got in the car. It's the same. You have to drive within the fuel load you put in the car. You have to drive within the aerodynamic characteristics of the car. You have to drive within the brakes of the car. And you have to drive within the tyre of the car. You can't just abuse everything to death or it will end up and you go over the top with it. So maybe the, the fact that they have this thermal degradation um, is you know not the right way to go about what the problem they've got. But this is what they were asked to do. So I don't think you should um, really shoot the messenger. I think you know Pirelli do a good job. They're good for Formula One. I think a tyre war would be impossible in Formula One right now. It has to be one one tyre manufacturer. Uh, I mean, you could take it to the extreme. Let's say if two tyre companies come in, and you on a on a Friday morning or a Thursday night or whatever it is, you'd pick your tyre company out of the hat. So each race weekend, you could be on a different tyre company. You know, there's five five Pirelli tickets in there and five. Bridgestone tickets, let's say, in the hat, and you pick out what one of them, and, and that's the tires you use for that weekend. Now that would make it so that you know everybody would have their own um, headache of trying to make the car work on whatever tire, and it would mean randomly from race meeting to race meeting you'd use a different tire. But that couldn't be because you know people use these things for advertising campaigns, so it's just impossible to happen. But that would be the extreme, I suppose, you could look at happening if you had a tire war. Just don't make it one tire that can the best tire gets on the best car because that just becomes a domination then so i think it's wrong to to abuse pirelli too much because i think they've done a, a strong job um and i think anybody coming in will just have a different problem probably but we'll have a problem yeah and it's important to note the laws of physics apply don't they obviously these cars are a lot heavier than last time bridgestone was in you know, more than 200 kilos heavier and even bigger than that, the growth spin, if you go back a little bit further. So it's very, very easy to look at Bridgestone with rose-tinted spectacles, isn't it? You know, they're a great tyre company, and I'm sure if they came in, they'd produce very good Formula 1 tyres. But when you're trying to put that amount of energy, that aero load, obviously the downforce has gone up as well. You've got the whole uh, uh, the, the whole load added by the weight as well. And that need to try and tune it to create racing. So it's a very different set of parameters, especially given Bridgestone never had to create a completely bespoke control tyre, shall we say. Yes, they did have the sole supply for a few years, but that was all rooted in tyre war technology, even when they switched to slicks for the last year in 2010, new product, but still rooted in years of tyre war. So it's a very different parameter. So I guess that's what has to be weighed up when looking at the tyre tenders. Although I think, as you alluded to there, the commercial aspect, I think could end up being the the dominant force because we know both Pirelli and Bridgestone can technically do it. Yeah, I mean, technically, I think uh, any tyre company could come in and do a solid job, but it depends on what you want from it. Um, you know, we see uh, in, in the more WC cars doing, you know, one, two, three stints or something on the same set of tyres because you can. Um, and it's quicker or whatever to not change them. But, um, it, you know, Formula One has got this habit of actually sticking its nose into other people's business. And I think that's what they've done with the, with the tyre technology. When Bridgestone pulled out, they stuck their nose into Pirelli's business and tried to define what tyres they wanted. And as Pirelli had problems, and we all saw the problems with tyre failures here and there, they got abused a bit about it. And again, I think F1 sort of stuck its nose in a bit further as that was going on. 
So I think it's got to a point now where, you know, I believe Pirelli could make a good tyre. Um, I mean, we, we many, many years ago, whenever I was building Anson Formula 3 cars, we used Pirelli tyres on the Anson Formula 3 car. And way back then, they were terrible. Um, I mean, we used to joke about them blistering before you got out of the garage. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they did make a good product at the end of the day. Um, and I think the product they have right now is is good for the sport. The drivers that can drive within the tyre, which you'll always have to do, do a good job. Now, whenever we go back to Bridgestone in the early 2000s, when I was at Jordan, you know, the, and the tyre war was at its full full flight, um, you know, we didn't get the same tyres as Ferrari got. That was a basic, simple thing. We did not get the same tyres. We tested sometimes the same tyres for um, for Pirelli, uh, for uh, Bridgestone, um, just to sort of let them see the differences. But our tyres, although they were the same, potentially the same compound, they were a completely different construction and completely different construction materials. Because, you know, in, in Bridgestone's words, they couldn't afford to make the tyres that they made for Ferrari for everybody. But as I say, we were lucky enough we had a, a reasonable relationship with them where we got tested them a few times. So we, we knew the, the delta, the offset. And it was, you know, you weren't talking about a tenth of a second or two tenths of a second. You were talking in the region of, you know, getting up towards a second difference, potentially, just from a different construction tyre. And the tyre itself was lighter. And, you know, both Mitchell and Bridgestone at that point in time were playing around dramatically with the, the thickness of the rubber uh, on the tyre. You, you know, you could change the tyre characteristics. You could change how it retained the heat by the depth of rubber on the tyre. And from race to race, that would be different. So... It's a different world now, you know, you have to make these tyres, you know, we make thousands of these tyres um, for for 20, 20 cars to run on. And, you know, it's not like you're making them for, you're just focusing in on one car and one car characteristics. There's 10 different teams out there with 20 different driver characteristics. You have to allow that all to happen correctly. So getting a, a step in the right direction to to make the tyres better would be a tough task, really, to be honest. And I think, as I say, I think Pirelli uh, don't do a bad job. You've worked, obviously, with a lot of different tyre companies in motorsport. Is there much of a difference in terms of the way they do things? People talk about one company being better than the other. Is there a discernible difference between working with Bridgestone against Goodyear? Again, you know, obviously, you, you've crossed paths with most. I think the biggest um, point, the biggest sort of uh, cross-reference I could give in my time in Formula 1, whenever I was working closely with the teams, was Bridgestone to Michelin. Um, because, you know, during my period with Stuart come Jaguar, we, we crossed over that area. So it was a, you know, a current car involved in the current design. And my initial reaction was that, the, that Michelin, they appeared to know so much more than Bridgestone did about the tyre and the construction and the rubber and you know, how it all worked together. And it just, either Bridgestone never told us the depth of their knowledge but Michelin were always very upfront up with it. You know, they tell you exactly why the tire had to be two kilograms heavier than than what we would want it to be. You know, the, the Michelin was always a heavier tire than the than the Bridgestone, and the Bridgestone to me was always like a a follow on at that point in time. It was always like a follow on from a cross ply tire. It was never really a radial tire, where the where the you know if you if you take at the carcass of the tire, you know, a cross ply tire the the carcass theoretically goes across the tire so it can expand with uh, with RPM. So the wheel goes faster, the tire will get bigger. 
and a radial tire theoretically goes around the tire so it doesn't expand it you know it's like a belt wrapped around your waist it doesn't get bigger um so the, the thing with the, the michelin philosophy was the fact that they wanted to keep the tire tread flat as big a tire uh, contact patch as possible on the ground and then they'd allow the sidewalls to do the deflection um whereas with uh, with bridgestone they end up you know there's a there's an angle between going around the tire and going across it so a 45 degrees which you could call it a sort of radial cross ply if it if it becomes sort of 46 degrees it's a radial and if it's 44 degrees it's a cross ply that's pretty rudimentary talking about it and and bridgestone hovered around that area so they had a tire that that you know deflected its contact patch quite a lot which meant the tire itself could be lighter because they didn't need as big a stiff they didn't want as big a stiff a belt so it's one of those sort of areas where the you know, it's never quite black and white what the what this radial tire and this cross ply tire really is. So the biggest difference for me, as I say, from going from Bridgestone to Pirelli, uh, from Bridgestone to Michelin, as we did with the Stuart and Jaguar days, um, was the fact that Michelin appeared to really know what they wanted. And I think whenever we see today their comments on Formula One, I think they still know what they want to do if they get involved with it but at the moment they they uh, they don't want to get involved with it yeah certainly they welcome a tire war that's not going to be the case for the coming years this tire tender covers up to 27 with an option i think for one more year i think it's 28 the option year but yeah if they wanted to go to a tire war it'd have to be down the line but as you say there's a lot of impediments to making that actually possible but we'll expect a response on the tire tender fairly shortly if i had to put money on it i would say pirelli must be favorites as the incumbents but i don't know the exact details of their proposals they have to produce very comprehensive dossiers talking about their plans their technical capabilities the commercial side as well so let's see what happens there Our main topic today is how you go about turning your struggling F1 team into a successful one using Williams as a case study. Of course, Williams was sold to Doralton Capital in 2020 after Covid hit and had endured what team principal James Vowles calls 20 years of underinvestment that it's battling to recover from. So Gary, what do you make of Williams' struggles in general? It's a difficult thing, you know, because uh, the, the problem is to build a car. It costs you the same amount of money, uh, reality, to build a bad car as it does a good car. So it's 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 obviously different we've we've done sort of surveys over over time as to the price of things that we had at jordan componentry that made the car up compared to at that time what uh, mclaren spent on certain things so it was you know an underfloor a radiator um front upright rear upright all those things we sort of did a bit of an analysis across it and we were at least half the price of, of mclaren we weren't performing as well so perhaps that was part of it you know, I don't know what the reasons were. It didn't seem to me we, if you take a radiator for example, we you know we cooled the car. We had a radiator on the car and it worked. Uh, McLaren cooled the car. They had a radiator in the car and it worked. So I'm not quite sure whether the cost was relative to performance or whether it was just relative to the way they went about it. Um, but at the end of the day, as I say in my book, a car costs you X amount to build. The materials in it are more or less the same from front to back now because the, the materials are defined fairly well in the regulations. So you can't get into super exotic, you know, nonsense. Um, so I think what James Valls is really saying and what happens with the car is that you're you're not you're not in a position to research it well enough. You haven't got the tools in the toolbox 
to look deeply enough at what you're doing as to whether it will perform. Now, I think these ground effect rules, that's caught everybody out, to be honest. Uh, it's maybe a different set of tools you need to. And that different set of tools can be covered to some extent um, with the minds of the people that you have creating the car. I see no reason at this point in time why a small team with limited tools couldn't actually build a good car. You just need to be able to think laterally about it all because, as I say, the, the simulation tools that you have, they didn't predict the porpoising problems that teams had at the beginning of last year. And they, they really took a long time to recover from that situation, to be honest. So I, I do believe that you can go backwards a bit. I think one of Williams's biggest problems is that they, they as a team, never really 100% bought into the... I suppose you might call it aerodynamic domination that Formula One became. They were always still from that old school of um, you know, engineering that Patrick Head brought, which was good, solid, sound engineering, and that won them a lot through time. But then it moved on. You know, whenever they had Adrian Newey there, um, the success changed. It became, for them, it you know, became more, uh, more aerodynamically driven. And I think that Adrian Newey's time spent with Patrick Head made Adrian a much more realistic, futuristic designer, I suppose you might call it. They could adapt his Patrick's mechanical sort of nuance to Adrian's um, theoretical aerodynamic talents. And some of the things they come up with between the two of them in those days was fantastic. You know, then obviously things change and he went to McLaren and all that stuff. But Williams himself never really got out of that, um, got out of that sort of bed that they were in, which was solid, good mechanical cars that finish races and, and really bought into their dynamic package. And I think it's still suffering from that, to be honest. And that is, you know, that's 20 years, very quick, goes very, very quickly. And if you're not, you know, if you're not increasing your knowledge in the aerodynamic side of things, you, then you're going backwards because everybody else is trying to do that. So I think, you know, the, the 20 years of, of uh, underinvestment is not quite just underinvestment. It's underinvestment in people, underinvestment in knowledge and obviously then the equipment that goes with those people and the knowledge you have to give them the tools to do the job that they need to do the job uh, and that's important and I think they haven't they haven't done that for a long time. As you said it's possible to make a good car as a smaller team how would you quantify a good car by which I mean Williams on average is about 1.7% off this year and there have been plenty of seasons when if you were 1.7% off you'd be up there on the front few rows of the grid and when you think about that time loss around all the corners it's not actually that much it's actually a tiny amount you know talking tenths here and there so do you think what they're producing now constitutes a good car based on that deficit or would you consider the good car in terms of where they can get to in the ranking with the facilities they got because obviously they're slightly different things we tend to measure by position don't we but performance is I guess the the key indicator in that you've got a better car if you're 1.7 percent off and last than if you were four percent off and second shall we say yeah i mean it's a, it's a fine thing it's a, 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 a difficult thing to sort of define what is a good car these days i think all the teams do an exceptional job because these cars are super complicated um the problem is that with the regulations being fairly um controlled i suppose you might call it there is more less room for people to actually really exert the knowledge you know you have to build within these days so that that does shut down the grid quite a lot because you know the cars define very well 
we do see differences. Uh, those cars now are heading in a, you know, they're all heading in a, in a similar direction, I suppose you might call it. Getting the front corner of the underfloor to work harder and trying to seal the sides of the floor and getting the diffuser to work harder. But it's still, it's still that aerodynamic philosophy of how the car operates transient. I'll, I'll talk about this forever in a day. Um, the transient conditions of an F1 car is much, much more important than any steady state characteristics. You could double the downforce steady state at perfect ride height, but the car will never achieve that around the track. So you have to give it good driver, good driver usable downforce when it's in a transient state on corner entry and through the middle of the corner. And I think that at the end of the day, I would look at performance as the consistency of the performance more than more than the actual number. I think you know overall over the year they've one point seven percent off, but some places they're in good, much better, and, and other places they're much worse. And it's the same with quite a few of the teams in the second half of the grid. The consistency isn't there, and I think if you've got a good car and you understand your car well, the consistency becomes the more important thing. I'd rather be a little bit slower but consistent because I, I would know where I was, I'd know what my car was doing, I'd know how to get the best out of it. It might not be as good as the best from some other cars, but I could get it to its best potential. And then if you can get it to its best potential, you can exploit that potential a bit further. That gives you a definite direction of, for, for engineering, for, for change. My point would be to try and stabilize the team a little bit and not be up and down so much. And, you know, if you could be on the, on the back of the points, you know, 9th 10th 11th every weekend then you know what you know you know what you need to do to go forward whereas if you're one weekend you're you know 7th 8th 9th and the next weekend you're 17th 18th or 19th then that's 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 you're no good at that that's that's wrong because you don't know what you're going to try to do you know you're you're lost in the in the, in the gray area of what makes you go quick and i think that's wrong so you need to you know, get yourself consistent before you can actually decide which direction to go in. Yeah, and it's fair to say from the performance profile we've seen from Williams, that inconsistency of performance lies ultimately in the fact it just doesn't have enough aero load. That's the weakness. If you look at Barcelona, they were significantly further off. Although, interestingly, a lot closer at Barcelona than they were last year. So that does show they're closing up. But yeah, it's fairly clear where the weakness is there. But we did see in Montreal their biggest upgrade package of the year. So there were clear differences with the floor, the, the side pods, etc. So they're taking steps, they're making progress, and that helped them to get that seventh place with what was a very well-executed race drive by Alex Albon, good strategically. They went for that one stopper with a stop under the safety car. So Williams also helped by executing well and having a driver doing a good job, and that's helped them to to get a reasonable number of points by this stage of this season. Yeah, it's, again, it's, it's all the parts of the jigsaw. You've got to do them all right. And just, as you say, executing a race, meet, a race weekend and the race is as important as anything, and that, that's where the consistency comes from. But uh, again, Williams have always been a car, the last few years have been a car that's been you know, very efficient. They've been able to run the car l- maybe lower downforce than they should, um, but so they've, you know, what they've lost through the corners, they've gained from the straight. So circuits like Montreal have sort of suited them a little bit. So I think they'll still be standing back thinking, you know, did it make, a, did it make progress? And again, Austria is a bit like that. It's, you know, it's a high-speed straights with um, with some low-speed corners connecting them all up. Um, there's a couple of fast bits, but you know, at the end of the day, you still need a car that's efficient there. So Austria could be good to them as well, and that's that'll be interesting to see if it can carry over from Montreal, 
you know, what they had there. But you're right, you know, they need more aero load on the car, but you need good aero load. You need aero load that's there all the time for you. Um, because I think, you know, Alex Albon, in my opinion, is as good a little driver as there is on the grid. Um, he just needs the opportunity. He had it with Red Bull, but, you know, for a young driver like that coming in as he did, getting dropped in the deep end with the politics that Red Bull had at that point in time was a pretty tough task. Um, and he's come out of it very well. You know, he's, he's, he got through it. It didn't get him down. He's got himself back in a decent drive now. And uh, he's, um, he's thought about very highly within the team. So at the end of the day, you know, they have everything there. They just need to improve the car bit by bit. And if they can keep doing that, then, you know, they will move forward. And obviously we saw recently the Red Bull floor and how complicated that looked. And then we saw the Williams floor and it was very, very simple. Is that illustrative of the level of understanding they still need to catch up with? I guess, is that a physical manifestation of that underinvestment? And that, as you say, they've fallen behind aerodynamically. I think you can trace that all the way back to letting Adrian leave, which they could have probably prevented by giving him a, a, even a small token stake in the company, which in retrospect would have been a pretty bold move. So is that that just a visual manifestation of their struggles? Well, I think it's a visual manifestation of the of the reason that Red Bull are, are beating everybody else. You know, it's not just Williams. The, 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 the complexity of the underfloor, and I've, I've said it from the beginning of this, you know, um, beginning of 2022, when we had a bit of a glimpse of the underfloor of the, of the Red Bull at one point in time, that it is so complex. I mean, they're, they're changing the flow velocity in, in tiny little pockets, tiny little areas on the floor, you know, where they can do. So it's, that's all about, you know, massive pressure tappings are through the floor, and you know, looking at, at the the flow acceleration in s certain little areas, how you can do it three dimensionally. You know, if you increase its height, you increase its width, you know, quickly, just to get that uh, the flow on the floor to be, I suppose you might call it heading in the right direction, where you have least leakage down the side, because there's no point in. You know, trying to seal the floor 100%, and you can't seal it all the way down the floor. You can seal it in certain areas. And where that certain area is that you can act with a good vortex and a good seal on it, then that's where you want to try to accelerate the airflow as, as much as you can. So you can do that, as I say, three-dimensionally. You can widen the tunnel a little bit. You can raise the tunnel quickly. Um, you, you, know, you can bring it back down and slow it down again. Uh, and and the, the Red Bull floor does all of that very, very comprehensively. So I think you know, every every team will be looking at it. But if you went from, oh, let's classify the Ferrari underfloor as being fairly basic. You know, it's a, it's a ground effect floor. It's uh, fairly two-dimensional. It gets a bit wider here and then it gets a bit higher here and there. But it's not complex like the Red Bull floor. But from one to the other, you're still maybe talking, you know, at most you're probably talking two-tenths of a second difference. So it's not just the only part. It's It's everything that goes with that. And it's, again, I, I keep saying about the centre of pressure of the underfloor, it's about getting that in the right place so that as the car builds up speed, you know, the, the wings aren't fighting the underfloor um, and you're not having to, you know, make the car run solid just to stop the car getting closer to the ground. It's, it's just a whole compromise of, of an understanding about the, the philosophy of your aerodynamics, how you want to use it. And that's what I think Adrian Newey is very good at. He's got years and years of experience of knowing the cars that he's built and the aerodynamic characteristics of them and how that applied 
how you can apply that to the driver's brain and get him to sort of understand it because the driver confidence is a massive, massive amount of the lap time. And if you can give him a car that he can feel and understand and, and knows what it should do, um, then, you know, it's very, very important. And I'll, t- I'll go back to, you know, Jordan in, in, in 98 when we had a, a bad year. You know, we had we had a, a car that was stiffer, more downforce, more efficient than the year before, but the, the drivers didn't like it. That was the problem. Ralf Schumacher was, you know, a white knuckle driver at that point in time. He was, you know, a good guy, young and hungry and keen. So he would go and put a lap time in, you know, that you think, oh, that's okay. It's, you know, he's fifth or sixth quickest or seventh quickest, whatever. And you think that's not too bad. But Damon Hill just didn't like the car. You know, I've seen him get out of the car and kick a rear tire because he couldn't understand it. And whenever we sort of discovered the problem, it was just the fact that, you know, with steering lock, we had understeer. The center of pressure of the car moved rearwards with steering lock. So you get into a corner, the car's understeering a little bit, you put a bit more steering lock on, the center of pressure moves further rearwards, you get more understeer. So you're in a spiral to nowhere. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't, the car wasn't responding correctly. And as soon as we sort of fixed the fact that getting the center of pressure to move forward a little bit with steering lock, you know, the driver put a little bit more steering lock on it, the car stopped understeering and it made sense to the driver. So that's the important thing. That's why I keep talking about aerodynamic philosophy. You've got to you've got to make the car make sense to the driver because, you know, he's not going to go into a corner, put steering lock on, car understeer a little bit. He's not going to take steering lock off, you know, because he knows that's he's going to run wide with that. If it understeers, the car's going to run wide. So he's got no place to go. He can't use his talents to drag lap time out of the car. And you've got to give the driver a car that allows him to use their talent to to get lap time out of it because that's all the difference is just being able to exploit the car that bit further and looking at the bigger picture one of the things that james vowles has been talking about recently is the impact of the cost cap on williams now it gets a little bit complicated here but i'll try and just quickly explain it to listeners but you have the cost cap we normally talk about which is the operational cost cap so that's designing building developing running your car that's a baseline figure of 135 million dollars although it's about 10 million more than that once you include various add-ons and bits and pieces but there's also a capital expenditure limitation the capex limitation effectively that works out as something like 36 million spent over four years so that limits you on infrastructure improvements vals has cited the need to spend significantly they need a digital system to plot the progress of every single design through the company rather than just doing it on emails just really work on the efficiency of that and there's other things they want to spend on he's even said it's hundreds of millions they need to spend to catch up and that's why he's pushing for a little bit more flexibility within the capex limitation what do you make of that gary i imagine 36 million over four years you'd have appreciated having that to spend on uh, infrastructure and facilities in your time but I guess that is the downside, isn't it? If you're trying to catch up with your equipment and your machinery and that kind of thing, because it covers all of that. It doesn't actually cover your buildings and that kind of thing, but all the stuff in them that you need to to make the car. You can understand why that's a little bit of a frustration, particularly for someone like James Vowles, who's come from Mercedes and knows what they've got and can just look at Williams and just see that although there's some areas where they're strong, he said, there's a lot of areas where they're deficient. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's obviously very easy to come from somebody like Mercedes where, you know, there was zero limitation on, on, on spending before the cost cap uh, and because of their budgets. They had massive budgets to achieve it um, and go to another company and say, oh, we've got to do this, we've got to do that. But at the end of the day, sometimes you've, you know, Rome wasn't built in the day, so you've got to build it slowly. I I think if you were... were able to spend that 36 million over the next four years 
um, and and just you had that money in the budget and everything was ready, ready to go, you would probably waste half of it because you just press the button on stuff just to get it there to be the same as or to try to be the same as Mercedes. And you know, Mercedes have developed through time. They they they've probably got there's probably a lot of waste in Mercedes that they, they could do without. You know, time moves on, it doesn't stand still for anybody. So what you've got to look at, I think, more importantly, is how you would take your your unit, your your company, and make that into a more efficient company. And efficiency is everything. I mean, Red Bull did set that set about that quite a few years ago, um, in the fact that they wanted to be as efficient as possible in making componentry, because they knew that would give them a bit longer to research. Uh, and and develop components. So before you press the button to make it, take as much time as possible, and then make sure that you're you, you manufacture it efficiently. And I think Red Bull found that you know quite a few years ago as being the biggest reward they could do in Formula One. So it still exists. You know, there's no point in a few. If it takes you months to make a, a chassis, for example, um, and and you could cut that down to three weeks. You know, it gives the guys that are researching the chassis as far as the FE analysis or the aerodynamic shapes concerned. It gives them an extra week to, to do all that sort of stuff. So you'll have a better product when you get there, but you've got to make sure you can build it. So, yes, I understand the production um, tools needed to see things through. But, you know, they are, they're worldwide now. They're, those tools exist out there. They're not, they're not like reinventing the wheel anymore. You know, it doesn't matter. Again, I go back to the old scenario of, of is it a washing machine or a racing car? It's still the same thing. You have to productionize it. You have to press the button on the componentry, and then you have to follow it through. And it's, it's no, there's no point in having the last bit first. You know, you need the first bit first, and you know the last thing you should bolt on the car, race car, before you go and run it is probably the rearview mirror. So there's no point in having the rearview mirror sitting on a shelf for two months while you're waiting on the chassis or the underfloor, the gearbox or whatever. So you need a, you know, a process that allows you to manage that build and. As I say, they, that's commercially available now. The process, a process is a process. It, as I say, it doesn't know whether it's a racing car or a washing machine. So you can get the, the tools to do that without having to reinvent them yourself. Whereas going back a few years, you know, Mercedes and Red Bull and those people did have to probably uh, invent them themselves. So yes, it's a, money is money. You know, if you can get it, you can spend it. Um, but it doesn't always mean you get a good return on your investment. I guess the positive thing with Williams is after those years with the underinvestments, the fact that there's an external limitation on spending the money they do have available is probably a good thing in terms of reflecting where the team is at. So it'd be interesting to see how they progress over the coming years. You're listening to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognise the value of asking questions and at Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, it'd be great for you to send us a question and we might well answer it on a future episode. You can either write us a question and email it to podcasts at therace.com or record a voice note, remembering to include your name, that we can play on the show. And we've got a bumper crop of questions this week. The first one that's simply signed from F is collect. 
it's connected to what we were talking about with Williams and the CapEx cost cap, but more talking about the main cost cap. And the question is, is it reasonable to question if the cost cap will do more harm to the sport than it will help? For all the reasons it was introduced, and those reasons are good and valid, in practice it seems to have really neutered in-season competition. If teams don't get it right out of the gate, there is seemingly zero chance of making it up in the season. There's simply no budget to do so. For two years now, all the talk around competitive balance has boiled down to next year, we'll do that next year. But I would love nothing more than to see Mercedes or Ferrari or Aston Martin bring new and substantive upgrades to every race. If, for example, Mercedes could introduce a completely new chassis and all sorts of other aero then we would actively see a good fight a progression of evolving competition through the year I love that about this engineering challenge of a sport prior to the cost cap but all that excitement is now gone the drama and fight is settled and we have to wait to see if anyone else can get it right next year is that good for the sport is it good for the sport I think if if something wasn't done I think then some teams would have struggled although what we are seeing now is you know Formula One is Value is raising dramatically. We've got ten teams that have got, you know, budgets, whatever. But I, I but I still think there's teams out there that, that actually struggle to reach the budget cap. You know, they're not all just spending this hundred and thirty-five million willy-nilly. You know, you're you're actually still fighting to do that. I don't personally. I don't think the budget cap is a, is a good idea the way it's done because I think it's too too much of the 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 top end of the company left out of it i.e the top three earners the the drivers you know that sort of thing should be part of it because that's a major major part of your your performance so if that's left out of that budget cap then all that is 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 nuts and bolts that you're trying to control and i agree with you there that the fact that uh, you know you you you've got the same amount of money to build the nuts and bolts of somebody else and once you've spent it on your nuts and bolts, you can't spend it again. Whereas the other people, uh, the, the top three earners can go off and think about things a bit differently. Um, and obviously you can you can invest in the best driver because there are differences in drivers out there. Maybe, you know, maybe not so much, but, you know, could you put Logan Sargent in a Mercedes and, and would he be competitive with Max Verstappen or, you know, who else can you put in from, from the back of the grid to the front of the grid and say they're going to be right up there fighting with, with Max Verstappen? It's very difficult. I think you you, you know the the good drivers have, have done their learning curve and come through it and got their experience. Um, so from my point of view, I don't think the budget cap is, is, is correct in the way it's done, but I think a budget cap is necessary. Personally, from my again, from my point of view, I would have tried to control the spend by saying that you know, you have to run your car, and let's say, you know, for five races. So you arrive in Australia, or you arrive for the first race of the year as Bahrain, um, and you have a car. And they, from the from the front axle center line forward, from the rear axle center line rearward, and from the the, the uh, axle center line downwards, front and rear axle center line downwards, those parts of the car have to stay the same for let's say four or five races, whatever it be, and you're allowed to change them you know, four times a year. So you can, you know, the main componentry of the car that makes the car go faster, you can do it, but you can't do it immediately. So you have to suffer the pain, but you also, you also have the time to get it right before you introduce the next package. You don't just thrash things every race, every race meeting, because I think that's wrong. When we were getting parts coming every race meeting, I think there was so much rubbish. The skips at the back of the paddock were just full of components because they didn't work on the track. So this would give you time to sort of 
work out what was going on. And you'd have a couple of wild cards as well to simply, you know, throw in there. Um, because obviously, if you had every five races, four times a year, that's 20 races. If you have more races, then you get those become wild cards. So for, for Monaco, let's say you could change two of those three major componentry, the, either the bit behind the rear axle center line or the bit below the, the front and rear axle center line or the bit in front of the front axle center line. So you'd have a wild cards that allowed you to do something different. Um, and obviously then you'd also have, you know, cooling that you could change, race to race, all that sort of stuff. But it's, um, it's very difficult to control it. It's very difficult to make up for not doing a good job during the winter. And I think it, the team doesn't do that. And they suffer some pain but there should be a way out of it. And I think the, the budget cap is theoretically that way. I'm interested to see how this budget cap discussions that are going on at the moment comes out and see, see where we are. Because, you know, when we got the Red Bull thing last year, it was a bit of a bombshell. Um, and I'm, I wouldn't be surprised to see another bombshell coming out quite soon. Because from what I've seen of the parts that's going on in the cars, there must be a few teams getting close to the mark with, uh, with spend. But we'll wait and see and see, see how that appears. But... Uh, I think, as I say, the, the the cost cap needs to be there, but it needs to be different. It needs to encompass everything, just to make sure that the teams don't, um, you know, spend way above their budgets, but then control the componentry on the car by defining the areas of the car. And it's, you know, it's all possible. And it's fair to say as well, historically, although, yeah, there is logic in the argument that if you limit the spending, you can limit the capacity to catch up. By limiting the spending, you also limit, whoever's at the front so it's not like the team at the front stands still and the others can catch up and often we've seen people still when the costs weren't limited in a season other than by what budget you have we still had times where teams said oh it's going to be next year when we have the opportunity to do a new car because it's still expensive and a lot of time if you want to change the chassis or that kind of thing that's a huge undertaking in season and was quite rare so like anything there's a few swings and roundabouts but uh yeah both way have uh, have compromises but i think yeah the cost cap is here to stay and next up we have a question from david randall who submitted it in audio form Hi guys, thanks so much for your work on this podcast. I really enjoy learning about the technical detail. My question's twofold and relates to car and driver characteristics. First, I hear a lot of talk about Red Bull's anti-squat and anti-dive geometry. If teams standardise this plus a really strict anti-roll in order to maximise the consistency of the floor, would we see drivers that like to really feel the car under the seat of their pants struggle in F1? And secondly, uh, if the cars were made 10% smaller in all, in all dimensions and in mass, would defensive drivers be better or worse off? Sometimes I feel like drivers get away with a lot of lazy defending just because the car is almost half as wide as the track, particularly at narrow circuits like Monaco and Imola. Thanks again. Well, just sort of taking the, the last part of your question uh, first, David. Yeah, um, if cars were made 10% smaller, that, that would be part of it. It would be, you know, uh, the fact that making them smaller means the track gets bigger, theoretically. Um, at the minute, you know, the cars are uh, two metres wide, so two cars sit inside besides four metres. Um, and that doesn't leave a lot for the track in some braking areas. And we know that, you know, the track is a certain width, but the braking area and the racing line is much, much more restrictive than the actual track width. So, you know, if you go way off offline and get in the dirty bit, you might as well not bother trying. So, yeah, the, the smaller cars in my book would be just about trying to increase the track width as such. But it would also be a mechanism to, to reduce the weight by a certain amount. 
Um, and that includes the length of the wheelbase of the car. So you take a bit out of the, out of the wheelbase, it's 3.6 metres at the minute. Why? Because it's 3.6 metres. It doesn't have to be. Um, it could be 10% smaller than that, which is, you know, whatever, 3.3 or 3.2 something. You know, for many, many years, the cars hovered around the three metre um, sort of wheelbase length. And then they sort of extended because the the, the underfloor was longer and uh, the car was more stable in high-speed corners and stuff. But if it's the same for everybody, it's the same for everybody. You have to package it to suit. So um, I see the car smaller and lighter as being good for overtaking because it'll make the track wider. The car, you know, you'll you'll be able to brake differently and, and recover better with a lighter car. So at the end of the day, it should be positive. Going back to the uh, the bit about the anti-dive and the anti-squat and the geometry and supporting the car mechanically through all that, the, the geometry of the car, it's it obviously changes the feeling of the car, the characteristics of the car. Um, but, you, you know, you don't do it to control bad aerodynamics. You you have to have good aerodynamics on top of it. You have to have stable aerodynamics on top of it. So you, what you're trying to do, you know, with, with supporting the car with anti-dive in the front and anti-lift in the rear is you're changing the aerodynamic characteristics of the car for the better. You're not just saying, oh, okay, there's these aerodynamics, the center of pressure is rushing up front the minute I hit the brake pedal. So I will put massive amount of anti-dive in the front of the car and support it because that means you have no feeling in the front of the car. You've still got to get the aerodynamics of the car to, to suit your, your, your philosophy of the design of the car. And the two work hand in hand. The, um, the, uh, the anti-dive, the anti-lift, anti-squat, if you have any, um, and the aerodynamic center pressure shift during those ride height changes all have to work hand in hand with each other. So it's not just a matter of, as I say, making the car solid with antis on the car to stop it moving because then, you know, the, the car has no feeling. You've still got to give the driver the feeling. So he's got to feel that under brake and the center pressure is moving rearward. That can be created by the, the geometry, by the anti-lift on the rear of the car, the rear of the car is sitting down when you hit the brake pedal that little bit. Um, so, you know, the two have to go hand in hand. And I think that's one of the places where Red Bull have won. I think if if everybody copied the Red Bull suspension geometries, uh, you still end up with, with a massive difference in the car's characteristics because the aerodynamics wouldn't suit it. And I think, you know, even when you look at um, Alfa Romeo um, and... Uh, Alpha Tori, and they have some of the Red Bull characteristics built in there, as do Aston Martin now and Mercedes. Um, but they're still not, you know, they're still not going out there and beating Red Bull every weekend. So there's still a lot to learn. It's a, as I say, it's not just one part that makes it work. It's everything working together that's important. Our next question is from Jasper in Canberra, Australia, who says, As an avid IndyCar viewer on top of enjoying F1, I know that there tends to be very little upset about the control tyres in that series, which are provided by a subsidiary of Bridgestone. I also know that Bridgestone had tyres which watered dust as opposed to marbling. Could it be said that Bridgestone has somehow found a way to make a tyre wear without introducing serious thermal limitations? And could this be the answer to our poor racing conundrum? I'd love to hear opinions and commentary on this, and the race consistently produces excellent content for all my favourite races series keep up the good work of course they're firestone tires in uh, indycar but yes uh, same overall company as bridgestone yeah i'm uh, i'm a, a lover of indycar as well um i think Indy that thinks that uh racing indy is easy it's not um i've been out there and engineered cars and even that's not easy and i think it teaches you a lot about about uh 
managing a car, running a car, um, being in the pit box, calling the tunes. Um, but some of the other circuits that they go to, I mean, some of our F1 drivers wouldn't drive there. They're horrendously bumpy. Um, and that's part of IndyCar racing, and that's what makes it a spectacle. But going back to your point about the tyres, you know, they have their, well, it's a green green and a black now, I think. It, was, it used to be a red and a black tyre. So they had the soft tyre was the, the red and one they call an option and one they call the prime tyre. Um, and obviously, in normal circumstances, one is faster than the other one and that sort of changes from track to track a little bit. Elkhart Lake was an example where the, the harder tyre was just about as quick as the softer tyre um, just because of the high speed nature of that track. Um, so a tyre can be built to do certain things. Um, the Indy cars aren't light either so you know they've, they've, they've definitely got a bit of weight there to manage. So Firestone, i.e. Bridgestone, making those tyres definitely do a decent job. We what we don't see much of, um, I suppose, in IndyCar is is blistering or or graining really. You know the the tires work quite well. The, you know, as I say, the faster tire is normally faster, the harder tire is normally slower. Um, I think there's a bigger difference between the two compounds uh, as as far as they're concerned relative to what we've got now, which is one of the things I'd do if I was uh, pushing the tires. I would do away with some of these mid compounds, make the tire difference uh, bigger. And I said earlier on with Bridgestone, you know, whenever they were in the tyre war with, uh, against um, Michelin, one of their biggest things was graining the front tyres, high-speed corners. The tyre would start graining. It would clean up. They didn't have the thermal degradation that, uh, that Pirelli do. Um, I was led to believe at the beginning of the Pirelli era that they were asked by the FIA to, put, to do this tyre degradation. And what what it was created with was tiny um, tiny little plastic bowls put into the tyre compound. So basically when it got to a certain temperature, these would melt. And in theory, they would, you know, the, they'd reduce the tyre grip level. Um, so if the tyre got too hot, the tyres would slide around a bit. That was asked to be to happen. Now, whether that's still happening or not, I have no idea. I'm not close enough to it anymore to, to find out. But it's one of those areas where, you know, the tyre can be built to, to suit the formula. In IndyCar, it's quite, it's a bit simpler because the cars are all the same. The teams, yeah, set them up differently and all that sort of stuff, but the cars are all Delaras. They're all to one aero spec. They're all carrying more or less the same aerodynamic forces, cornering forces, loads. Um, so the tires can definitely be focused in on, on a certain, uh, a certain direction to suit that car whereas in Formula 1 it's quite different there's 10 different cars out there and as we can see there's a big difference in the performance of those 10 different designs from front of the back front of the grid to the back of the grid and that's where it becomes difficult for a tyre company which which team do you pick to to, to maximise your tyre knowledge from it doesn't mean you're building a tyre for that car but if 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 a team is producing 10% more downforce than another team you've got to make your tyres withstand those loads and that will hurt that other team, um, the, you know, at the back of the grid that isn't producing those loads. So it's, it's, it's a different deal when you've got all these different chassis with different characteristics and trying to build one tyre to suit them. I think that we should have a range of tyres that are wider apart between soft, medium and hard. We only need three. Um, just widen that, that window a little bit and then try to spend time making that a better soft, medium and hard, more durable soft, medium and hard, reduce the thermal degradation to a, to a minimum, 
and if that brings graining or um, wear degradation because you know there's no rubber left on to carry to keep the temperature in the tire because at the minute the tires degrade because of the overheat i'd rather see uh, the tire degrading because they they underheat because the, t- the temperature just disappears out of the tire because the rubber's worn off it and that should all happen could could happen quite easily but you know between pirelli and the fia they've got to come to a solution as to who actually makes these tires who actually designs these tires and i think it's a bit of con uh, a bit of confusion in there whereas an indycar i don't think there is i think it's quite straightforward bridgestone make a tire firestone market it to suit 20 odd cars that are all manufactured by the same manufacturer with carrying similar aerodynamic loads so indycar is much much easier than formula one to actually get a solution to a given problem and our final question today comes from Tom Brenneman, who says, would it be possible for a midfield team to focus their car design only on one unique racetrack and win it? For example, if a team like Alfa Romeo designed their 2024 car specifically around the Monaco Grand Prix, could they beat the top teams? Secondly, would there be any benefit to that approach? Is it worth trying to win one and then be last in the rest? It makes me think of the Tour de France. In that race, teams will go for one or two stage wins for the publicity, knowing they don't have a shot at the overall win. I think it would be a very a very focused thing to do. I mean, obviously, you could build a car with bucket loads of downforce uh, and hope that you could win it, you know, win Monaco with it, which would be great, and we've all loved to do that. But the problem is, you can also get to the first corner at Monaco and knock your front wing off and end up last, and that's your hope gone. You know, you've, the rest of the season's not going to be good to you. So you, you, it's, a, it's a fine line. I think you look at the overall picture. I mean, whenever we talk about the race car. Each team in its own little way will have its theoretical baseline track that it might take as you know characteristics that it needs to to make the car good around. And some teams, you know, for years have used Barcelona as that track or Silverstone. You know, you use a certain track with certain corner characteristics to try and make the car good around there. And everything else to compromise each side of that, from the high downforce tracks like to Monaco, uh, to low downforce tracks like to Monza. Because you know there's not so many of them. And what you want to do is get your, your car as good as possible for Mr. Average track. And um, then then you suffer the consequences of some of the others. Most teams will want to do well consistently. Um, and that's where I was saying earlier on, you know, consistency is everything. And if you can if you can finish, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth even, consistently, you're doing all right. You know, if you're a small team, you're doing a very good job. If you're a big team, you want to be finishing you know, first, second, third, fourth consistently. So it's a fine line between what your company objective is and just that one-off glory. You, you try and pick up the one-off glory if you can by making right decisions whenever the conditions are, allow you to. And, you know, it starts raining at the wrong time or, or in some cases it starts raining at the right time. You, you, know, you try and make the right decisions to suit that sort of thing and pick out your, your one race here and there that you do exceptionally well from that. Um, but I think, you know, you need to build your car for, for the, the average track um, and not the extremes, which are, as I say, Monaco and Monza. So um, from any point team, any team that I've worked for, at any point of view the team had, it, should, it needs to recognise its own level of competitiveness. And if you're finishing, as I say, fifth, sixth or seventh, don't get frustrated because you're not winning. Just try to finish fourth, fifth and sixth. You know, just take that little bit of a step. Um, just make sure you know where you are, what you're trying to do, and that your your steps forward are positive, and you can you can consistently put them um, 
put them together weekend after weekend because that's that's what any team wants just do the best job it can in the championship score as many points as possible and get as big a payday at the end of the year as possible do you think it would be possible hypothetically for a team towards the bottom in f1 to, to actually produce a car that could be fastest around monaco if they maxed out on dirty downforce took out all of the compromises or do you think they'd always be behind the, the top teams even with that extreme approach i think if somebody was to ask me what track would you pick i'd pick monza more than uh, more than monaco monaco has got such uh, is such a difficult track to get everything together you know from the fact of just traffic you know um, if you were just doing single laps and it was qualifying was just a single lap thing, then yes, you could exploit that a bit and dirty down forces, you say. But it's it's got faster. Dirty down forces, it's it's now not so dirty as it used to be. You know, it's 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 now it's it's a bit more tidy down force. Um, but Monza is one of those tracks where you know you're not going to get affected by all that stuff if you built a super streamlined dev- device. And super efficient car at Monaco at Monza, you could probably get away with it, and you could probably do a good job, because it's one of those tracks where, you know, it's it's not so demanding on everything else as on just pure aerodynamic speed, and um, you could probably do something like that at Monza. But I wouldn't like to go that route personally. I think it's you know it's a bit of a lost cause. It's like some of these teams, that, you know, whenever Formula One was way back, and some teams would show up at one or two races here and there, and you know they'd uh, they do very well, but it's it's not real, you know, it's not real competition. You want to beat them all every day of the week if you can, but not just in one flash because you've you've exploited the regulations up to a different level. Well, many thanks for those questions and also for the excellent answers from Gary. And remember, if you have a question to ask, and please, there's no question too complicated or too simple, send it to podcasts at therace.com. That's podcasts at the-race.com. Our attention is going to be turned to the Austrian Grand Prix now, so keep an eye on our website for Gary's analysis of any upgrades that break cover. All that's left now is to thank Gary for his insight and everyone for listening. And remember, we'll be back after the British Grand Prix for more from Gary. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic.